Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. Today's episode is fantastic as far as I'm concerned. Um, I really enjoyed my guest, Josh Quigley. Um, It's an incredible story that he tells about his life and where he is now in that life. Uh, Before I get to a little more descriptor of that, the usual stuff, um, my Amazon affiliate that helps support Hey Human is on the main page of heyhumanpodcast.com. You just go there and if you're going to do your Amazon shopping, head over to heyhumanpodcast.com. There is an Amazon banner at the top of the page. Click on that. Do your shopping like normal, and it helps support Hey Human. So I really appreciate that. Uh, Social media stuff. I'm all over the World Wide Webs with the social media, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I'm on Twitter, all the stuff. So please check it out either under Hey Human Podcast. I'm also on there under Susan Ruthism. Uh, My email, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Please email me, let me know what you think of the show, and if you have any ideas for guests or stories of people that you think I might find interesting. Um, As always, in this episode especially, links page on Hey Human Podcast is full up of great links for things that we talk about, books, reference, or, you know, what articles, whatever it is, it's on that links page. Uh, please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes and on your various podcast apps, however you listen to Hey Human. And keep getting the word out. I really appreciate it. Um, so Josh is the guest on this episode. Josh Quigley, otherwise known as the Tartan Explorer. Uh, he's from Edinburgh, Scotland. And on May 26, 2015, he attempted suicide by driving his vehicle 80 miles an hour into a cement barrier uh, along the roadside and he survived and um, not only did he survive but he went on uh, to spread awareness about suicide prevention about hope about just living outside of yourself and by doing so finding the life within Um, just incredibly a motivational experience, to say the least, inspiring, um, just really incredible. Um, very proud and honored that he said yes to being on the show, and the conversation was delightful and inspiring, really. I know I said inspiring already, but I'm going to say it again. Inspiring. There, I said it three times. I just want to mention if anyone is feeling depressed or needs help, if you need a lifeline, in America, the National Suicide Prevention phone number is 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255, so 1-800-273-TALK. You can also do the crisis crisis text line. You can text the word START to 741-741, and in Europe... Um, and really all over the world, there are a lot of phone numbers and um, ways that you can reach out and get help. Um, I am posting all those numbers on Hey Human podcast on the links page. So please just know that there is hope and um, reach out to someone. Uh, In the UK, the phone number is 116-123. 
So there's a whole lot of numbers on here uh, and I will post those. So please um, don't give up. As always, thank you so much for listening to Hey Human. Thank you for spreading the word and um, yeah, keep on keeping on everybody. Here we go. Josh Quigley, welcome to Hey Human. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Um, I learned about you, gosh, it's probably, I want to say it was at the beginning of your adventure. And I'm not even sure, I think you had posted something on LinkedIn, uh, which is so random for me to be, you know, exploring the LinkedIn and, and, but there was something about what you were saying that really caught my attention. Um, So way back in, is May of 20, is it 2015? Yes. Yeah, you were at the end of your rope, as they say, and you drove your car into a pole or a tree or... It was a concrete barrier. Oh my God. That'll... Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to that moment. I'm sure it's... You get asked this all the time, which... But I think it's such an important part of the, the whole story, obviously. Take us back to then and what was going on. Yeah, so the end of 2014 I went through a difficult event in my personal life which was the the big trigger for a really intense and dark depression and there was a six month period between the beginning of kind of January to May in 2015 where I was in a a very dark the best way to describe it is that I was was generally just very depressed I was suicidal, I didn't have any energy I just I just lost all interest and mm-hmm. love for, for anything in life. And I'd obviously had these thoughts about ending my life almost every day for that six month period. And on the twenty sixth of May, one night I just woke up and I was just pushed past my breaking point is the way I would describe it. I think I'd always been scared in that six month period of the perceived pain of doing it. But when I woke up that night, it was like the pain that I was in was far greater than that perceived pain mm. of actually ending my life. And that's how I described that I was pushed over the breaking point where I had to do something. I'd had the idea for quite a few months and I just felt, right, it's time to do it. And uh, I got dressed, jumped out of bed, got dressed, jumped into my car. And it wasn't like one of those drives where I just went to clear my head. I genuinely, that was the reason I was in the car. That was that was the intention. I thought, I'm going to crash this as fast as I can. That was a complete intention behind that drive that night. And it's quite surreal talking about it now because when I think about those final, what I thought were the final moments of my life, as I was approaching the barrier, you might think that, well, it's okay having this idea in your head, but then when you're actually there, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, this is quite intense. You might think that you might get scared and think, no, I'm not going to do it. But as I approach that barrier, and why it's a bit surreal for me talking about it now, because of how much I love life and how happy and excited I feel just to be alive, that in those final few moments, how quite how content and happy I felt with what was about to happen. Hmm. And the reason why I find it surreal is because how can the, like I'm the same. Well, biologically, I'm not the same person I was back then, but, but like I am essentially the same person. How could me, of two or three years ago, be that happy and content about my car about to plough into a concrete fixing at 80 miles an hour, whereas that now, 
in this moment in time, that's the worst thing that could ever happen to me in my life ending. And I'm so happy. So that, that's the bit that's why I find it quite surreal talking about it because as I was approaching that barrier, there was no part of me that thought, turn left or turn right. And I've it. it was, this has to happen. And I hit the barrier. And that's another bit that's pretty surreal as well because I, I think people think at this point in the story, I hit the barrier. And then I was I woke up in hospital a few weeks later. Maybe I was in a coma, very badly injured. But I wasn't even physically injured in any way. Which, to me, I still I still don't really understand that. I wasn't even knocked out at the time. I was fully conscious for the full experience. Wow. Uh, I experienced no physical pain, no cuts, no scratches, no bruises. Did it you was, have your seatbelt? Were you wearing a seatbelt? Yeah. Well, I find yeah. that interesting. Do you think that some some part of you yeah. is somewhere? Yeah, and we, we might come back to this. I think it's probably better to come back okay. to this later. You maybe you maybe you maybe want to make make a note of this. Okay. But at the at the at the time, I fully fully thought that I wanted to end my life. But there's something I realised very recently, and it's about the seatbelt. Why I was wearing a seatbelt, and yeah, please come back to that. I will. It's, it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you have a, a thought in your mind um, back then that if you had done it, I mean, you were going to do it, so in that process of deciding this is it, I'm going to end my life, did you have an idea that that would be it completely, or did you have a sense of heaven or, you know, any, kind, any of that stuff, or was it just solely in the moment? Not knowing if you have that anyway, but I'm just curious, like, in that moment. Yeah, at that point in my life, in 2015, I had no, I was not religious, I was not spiritual. I thought when you died, you died, that was it. So to me, I was in so much pain. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go to an afterlife, I'm going to get a better life. It was just, I'm in so much pain right now and I want this to be over. And I made the mistake that a lot of people make in believing that the only way to end the pain is to end the life. Mm. When there's actually many more ways to end the pain. I think when, I mean, I'm not going out on a limb here. I believe every person on the planet has experienced depression at some point. Now, of course, there's varying degrees of depression. But I think for some of us, when we get into those very dark spaces, there's two ways you can go with it. It's either this is it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel like this forever. And so I'm just going to take myself out. Or... I know somewhere there's that little pinprick of it will get better, but you were stuck in the previous, not the latter. But you had yeah, no fear. I, I find it so interesting that you you had you were just serene, and you know I'm deeply spiritual, and part of me thinks well, I wonder if that's because you knew somewhere in your subconscious, in your being, in your soul that you were going to go on this grand experience and that in fact although you didn't have to die thank god you were like a sacrificial lamb to the greater good in that moment yeah so as i said back at that time i wasn't spiritual i wasn't religious but since then i'm now very deeply spiritual i I really believe in the soul and the power of the universe and I, i believe that that night I was meant to do that mm. like that that was that was meant to happen that night and that's why looking back at that night it's it's probably the best night of my life 
<laughs> Ironically, not, yeah. Not at the time. Yeah. Not at the time of generally, like, I'm having so much fun in this night. But when I look at, like, if you look at that night, it's just one night out of, say, say I live for 100 years, which I think I will. Say if I, if I live for 100 years, that one night is nothing. But you think about that night never happened, the future could have never happened. Because I think that if that night never happened the way it did, then maybe a few months later I'd done another attempt and it was successful and the whole thing would have been over for me. But I believe that happened the way it happened for a reason. I really believe that because I think that the fact that I came away from it with no injuries as well, mm-hmm. that that's so important. I think that see if I'd came out of it and I'd say I'd been badly injured and I was in a wheelchair for six months and I took a year to get walking again. I don't think I would have really looked at it the way I look at it now. I think the fact that I literally came away without a scratch or a cut or a bruise, that was the bit that really made me wake up. And I was like, wow, what has happened here? Like, And then the next again night when I was in hospital, I got released after like 12 hours because there was nothing wrong with me physically. Mentally, there was a lot wrong, but there was nothing physically wrong. And I was sitting that night, I got up out of my hospital bed I walked along to the little chapel. As at this point, never been religious. I remember just sitting there thinking, and I wrote a message in the book, the little visitor book, that said, I don't know who it was or what it was, but something has kept you alive. And you've been given this second chance. You have to go out there and find that reason why. Hmm. Were you in Edinburgh at the time? Yeah, this was in Edinburgh. So did you have family and friends around you that... I think this is so important because this this next bit here, because with depression, I think that people think, oh, well, it's an obvious, it's obvious when people are depressed, it's obvious. I don't think it's obvious at all. And I, and I every time I read in the paper or on the news about somebody, especially a young person taking their life, and it's always followed by, they were, they had so much to live for, they were so vivacious, so much good was happening, and I don't think people quite get the connect that none of that outside stuff matters when you're in that space. So did people around you have a clue, or do you think that you kept that pretty well locked down? Yeah, I think there's a couple things I thought of when you said that there. The first thing, I think that when it comes to other people, and other people looking in, I think what typically people do is they go, well, well, this guy had everything. So for, for, for my own example, at the time, I was running my own business. I had loads of good friends. I had to everything that, for a young guy at 22, living in Scotland, I had everything that a young guy could possibly want from life. What reason did I have not to be happy? But I think the issue and the challenge with that is that we judge happiness on the wrong type of metrics mm. so we say if a person has a good job a good career they'll be happy if they have lots of money or if they're successful or they're achieving things so it's that's that's the problem there we look at something go but he had everything thinking that those every, things that are included in that everything are the things that are going to make you happy when it's not mm-hmm. so that's the first thing i would say on that in terms of the people i had around me when that happened when i was in the hospital that was when really most people actually knew, like, this is serious. I think I wasn't really close to my family at the time. And kind of, I distanced myself from them just intentionally, just because of what I was going through. I just, yeah, that was one of the ways I dealt with it. But for them, I think they could see from the outside in that there was some worrying behaviour. 
I was obviously I was drinking a lot at the time, a lot of alcohol. I wasn't going to work as much as I usually would have. And yeah, I think from the outside in, although I wasn't talking to them about it, they could definitely see that there was something wrong. But I think the the incident that led to me going to hospital, that definitely was the moment where they were like, right, this is actually serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I find it also intriguing that the hospital said, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with you physically. Go on, go do your life when there was clearly something wrong. Did you, as you were, how long were you in the hospital for? Well, I must have I must have arrived at the hospital about three in the morning after it happened, and then I think I was out the next day, so less than twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. That's insane to me that they did. They just think you had a regular car accident. Well, no, I, I told them oh, from yeah. from the moment the ambulance and from the moment the ambulance and the police arrived on the scene, I told them straight away this was intentional. And it's quite funny, one of the things that I can't remember saying this, but in the little like docu- police file from that night, in the interview, they asked me why I'd done it, and I told them a million reasons. You told them what? You said what? Will you repeat that? In the interview, sorry, in the interview, they said to me, why did you do this intentionally? And I told them there was a million reasons why. Uh. Yeah. Just, I mean, just as an off, what car manufacturer is this? Because clearly this is a very safe car. <laughs> I, I, people have asked me that a lot, actually. I don't, I don't even remember. I, can't, I think it was a Ford. Maybe, I think it was a Ford. <laughs> well, shout out to Ford. <laughs> um, okay, so you get out of the hospital. How... You, did you immediately go into a deep soul... And it, I'm sure you get these questions all the time. I apologize if I'm repeating other interviews you've had, but I am. this stuff is really... I'm very curious um, because I think it's such... I think it's far more prevalent than, than people acknowledge, and so I think it's extraordinarily important that your voice gets heard, you know, for a myriad of reasons. So as you're, you leave the hospital... When did you start to break down in your mind, okay, there's something going on here that is deeper and that I need to dig into and and deal with? Or did that did that not come for a while or was that an immediacy for you? Yeah, so that's the part of the story where, where I would love to be able to say that lying in hospital, I thought, oh my God, I've been given a second chance. I'm going to go and turn my life around. And then from there, everything was plain sailing. But it, it didn't quite happen like that. I remember that night in the hospital feeling like something special had happened. I knew something big had happened and that I had been given a second chance. But to be very honest, it never came straight away. I genuinely went back to living my life how I'd been living it previously. And so at that time, I was drinking a lot and partying a lot. And that, that was my way of dealing with the depression. But basically, any time I could, between like the th- a Thursday and a Sunday and the weekend, I would be in the pub in Scotland <laughs> drinking alcohol because that that was the way that was the way I, I chose to do it. But there was a there was a moment about three months after that in September two thousand and fifteen where I was having a conversation with my I had a business mentor. I was running my own business at the time, and we were on the phone. And his name was Alan Alan Bonner. And I says to him, do you know what, Alan? If only I'd never been through that event, I'd be happy. Hmm. And he said to me, 
what other excuses have you got, Josh? And that is, that was a moment, like the defining moment in my life where things changed because in that moment I realised that, do you know what, I had been through a tough event that was tough, tough for me to deal with personally, but everybody's been through something in their life. we all got tough events in our life. We've all been through adversity. It's not really about what happens to you. It's about how you respond. And I realised that I'd been through a tough event, but my response to that event was very negative and I wasn't giving myself the best chance to succeed and have good health. And I realised in order to change my life, in order to change my health and change how I felt, I was going to have to change something about myself or my life. And that's what led on to the journey of the Tartan Explorer. Mm-hmm. Before we get into that, which is extraordinary, um, do you did you immediately stop drinking so much? Did you go for a sobriety moment? What did how did? Because I know that alcohol is a depressant, and yet millions and millions and millions of people use it to alleviate pain, which obviously doesn't really work. So, did you keep drinking, or did you decide to to get sober, or? That, that, that was the moment in 2015, September, that was when I first decided that, do you know what, I think I have to move away from alcohol and live a life without it. Mm-hmm. So, so up, up, and, up until this point, I'd been drinking from the age of 12, which is, I'm not sure what that what that sounds like as an American, but that's not uncommon in Scotland. I was going to say, it makes you sound like you're from Scotland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is, that is totally not uncommon in, in Scotland, especially the working class communities where I grew up. It's very, very natural. So I was, I was drinking from about 12, and then from the age of about 16, when I started being able to go out to bars, it was prob- probably at least two times, most times three or four a week from the age of 16 until that moment in, to the, in 2015. So it was... It was almost pretty much 10 years of serious drinking for somebody who was, was not even like an adult yet, really. It was only 22. The drinking and age is 16 first... for bars? Wow. Well, no, it's not. It's oh. 18. Oh. It's 18, but they, it's, it's much stricter now. I think if you were 16, you'd struggle to get into a bar now, but back when I was, I'm not even that old, but back when I was young, well, that young anyway, it was possible, yeah. Yeah. To go into bars. God, it's so hard on a growing body, too. Not that we all didn't do it. I mean, I went to plenty yeah. of keggers in my, you know, when I was 16 in my high school, so. Yeah. Um, so so that, that was the moment where I first consciously thought, right, maybe, because what happened at this point was, I thought to myself, right, what are all the things that I'm doing that could be causing me to feel this way? I done, I done what I call a life audit. I just audited every single area of my life, like what I was doing for work, what I was drinking and eating, what sort of information I was consuming, what mm. sort of people I was surrounded by. I just looked at all these areas and I thought, what things can I change? Mm-hmm. And I knew that alcohol was the biggest one that was having the biggest impact. And so, so that started the journey off. And between then, that moment in 2015 and now, I've not, compared to what I used to drink, how much I used to drink up until that period, I've not drunk that much. I had, that, that the end of that year, I drank maybe a few times at Christmas time. In 2016, when I started cycling, I had a couple times where I drank, but not that much. And then in 2017, I managed to do nine months of the whole year sober. And then this year, just in December last year, I decided, 
right, that is it. I'm like, I'm really done with it now. So, so, so now I'm completely teetotal. But since that moment, the last couple of years, there've been times where I've done it. Most times I've not. But now I'm finally in a place where I'm ready to make the commitment to it because I just I have the self awareness that I'm not the type of person who's going to just go out and have two or three drinks. I'm not. I'm very all or nothing. So. I've just made the decision to, to go completely sober, which is, it's been very liberating, actually. Yeah, I made that decision myself about three months ago. Um, I interviewed somebody for the podcast, this guy James Swanick, and he started this thing called the 30 Day No Alcohol Challenge. And I thought, well, I'll do it just so I have something to talk to him about. Not that I was a super heavy drinker, but I was certainly a social drinker. And I live in Nashville, Tennessee, where the joke is, <laughs> it's a drinking city with a music problem <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I started doing it and I felt so good I just kept going and now three months have gone by I feel great yeah, yeah. so it's, it's been life-changing for me yeah you mentioned about the things you consume intellectually um, the things you the news and all that did that make a big difference for you massive 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 difference that's that's one of the things that I don't think many people are talking about but it's so underestimated in terms of the impact that it can have in your life see when you cut out mainstream media news TV and I'm not just talking about like like the news and factual information like that's like the general the news and newspapers see when you also cut out all the other nonsense like reality TV mm. and just and just general like, I don't think we understand how much impact TV and movies have on us like they really do so, so I, I've cut out everything like that and the thing that's had the biggest the, the area of my life that's had the biggest impact on is definitely anxiety mm. I, I really I really don't have much anxiety at all compared to the past anyway sometimes because of what I do now like I, I'm doing public speaking I'm speaking to big audiences sometimes you get a little bit nervous before going on stage but I'm talking about anxiety in the sense where you don't want to leave the house because you're just so fearful it's massively helped with that because one of the things that mainstream media is is massive. What it does basically is it just it just creates so much fear, and it just when you're so in tune with all that stuff, it just it causes you to live in fear all the time because all you're doing is listening to all the bad stuff that's going on in the world and at the expense of focusing on what's actually going well. And I think something that I learned is that I used to always think that, but does it mean that I don't care if I don't follow what's going on in the news? It doesn't mean I don't care. I still massively care about all the issues. I just don't choose to consume information about the world in that way. Yeah, I think that's such a valid point. I mean, there's a lot of money being poured into making humanity feel less than and fearful. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So where did the seed for the Tartan Explorer come about? And explain what that is, too, for everyone. Yeah, so September 2015, I thought, this is it. I'm going to take 100% responsibility for my life. I'm going to do something to change my future. And it was quite an exciting moment, actually. And I actually feel like quite excited even thinking back to that period. It was like, wow, like what am I going to do? I knew I was going to do something, but I didn't know what. It was just like the whole world had just opened up to me. And I, I was just kind of free to do something that was going to help me. And originally, the, the original idea of the Tartan Explorer and where this, where the name came from was, have you ever heard of a morph suit? Of a what? A morph suit. Huh. It's like a, it's like a very tight latex outfit. Ooh. And they're very, 
<laughs> oh, they're, they're, they're horrible. But they're, they're, they're kind of like fan, fancy dress. People will wear them at Halloween and for, for fancy dress and when they're, they're playing pranks, things like that. They have one that's a Scotland one and it's got a huge Scotland flag right over the whole thing. And I came up with this idea that I was going to go around the world in this morph suit as the Tartan Explorer. And that was going to be my thing. Like, And I was going to... It was just this big campaign to pretty much this crazy Scottish guy out around the world in this crazy suit and just kind of promoting Scotland as a country because at this point I was so passionate about Scotland and the country that I came from. So that was the original idea. And then about a month after it, I started working on this idea. I was about to launch it. And I was at this time I was running my own business. On paper, it was successful. And I thought to myself, I was out running one night and I thought, how am I going to explain to my employees, my friends, my family, everybody in my network, that I'm giving up this good business, a stable career path, to go around the world in this latex suit. How, how am I going to explain that? And I thought, well, I was in a car crash, and I survived, and I'd been given a second chance. I wanted to do something big. And that was the moment, because at this point in time, only a handful of people knew that it was what had actually happened in a car that night. Mm. Most most people thought I was just in an accidental car crash. Where and I, t- I told everybody that I fell asleep at the wheel. And that's when I realised that that was the why, that was the reason. I thought, going around the world in the morph suit, it shouldn't be about promoting Scotland. I should tell the story of what really happened in a car that night. Mm-hmm. And this big campaign and challenge around the world should be about my journey with mental health and trying to inspire people. So that was the moment and and then the name the Tartan Explorer was there. I just decided to keep it and I suppose the rest is history. <laughs> so let's talk about your journey because I know that you've actually come to another um, place because I, I watch your videos so I know so I've been following the journey all along but um, talk about some of the, the highlights and the lowlights. What I, what I really appreciate about and for everyone listening um, you can if you go to his LinkedIn, you can find Josh's videos, but they're, I assume, also at your com as well. They're all, they're all, on, they're all on YouTube. They're if all on you YouTube. go to Josh, Josh Quigley on YouTube, you can see them as well. Yeah, and what I, I appreciate the fact that not only do you talk about when you're feeling great and happy and everything is hunky-dory, but you talk about when you feel like crap and the world's going to shit and, you know, for you, that it's so real and honest and... We talked about fear a second ago. I think one of humanity's greatest fear is vulnerability. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's really great that you are open to being so vulnerable. So talk about some of maybe the, the highs and lows of the journey and all the places that you went to, because you went all over the place. Yeah. So so then, so then a couple months after that, I was inspired. I went along to see Sir Chris Hoy, who's a very famous British Olympian. He'd won like five gold medals. And I went along to see him speaking in Edinburgh and he was telling the story of how he achieved goals in cycling. I remember sitting in the audience that day and I thought, fuck it, I'm going to cycle around the world. That was So the Tartan Explorer then became this challenge about trying to cycle around the world on a bike. Now, at this point in time, I was very overweight, I was unfit, I was majorly depressed, still a little bit suicidal, and I'd never cycled a bike since I was a kid. So I had absolutely nothing about me that suggested that I could possibly cycle around the world. But you know what I did have? I had such a desire within me to change my life. And 
the desire was so big that when it came to the technical side of it, I was going to just do it because I had to do it. This, for me, this Tartan Explorer thing wasn't just a campaign. It wasn't just an idea or a project. For me, it was the last throw of the dice. Yeah. I, I'd made a pact with myself secretly that I'd done this cycle and it never worked. I didn't feel any better that I was going to attempt suicide again. Mm. So, Wow, really? So you went into yeah, it thinking yeah. that, wow. Yeah, it was, I'm a very all or nothing person and it was like success or failure. If it succeeds, brilliant, I'm happy, I've done it. If it doesn't, like I've tried everything, it's just time to give it up. Which, again, seems very serial to think that I was in a mindset like that just, just two years ago. But... I suppose we'll get into it in a bit, but I've always said that it was my last throw of the dice, but uh, very luckily I rolled two sixes. I did. I, so I, I get, so 26 of May 2016, exactly one year on from the car crash, I got on a bike and cycled out my, my front garden in Scotland, attempting to cycle around the world. Now, as I said, at this point, I was unfit, overweight, depressed. But that journey that I went on with that bike, so I never managed to get right around the world, but in, in, in a one-year period, I managed to cycle 10,000 miles around 15 countries in Europe. And I'd done all in Scandinavia, went to the highest point in Norway, right around Mediterranean Europe, France, Spain, all the Northern Europe countries. And at the end of that, there's loads of stuff went on in between that start and end. But at the end of that cycle, one year in, I was the happiest I'd ever been about life. I had this passion for this subject of happiness and personal development and, and health and well-being. I was, I was fit, I was healthy, I was, I was cycling all these miles. And so if you can imagine where I was when I started and where I was when I ended, it was just, it was an absolute life-changing experience. And I think that I get quite romantic talking about that experience because to me I look at that cycle like like a high school sweetheart mm-hmm. I, I really do because you think about where I was when I started and where I was when I ended it literally did change my life and to go from feeling where I was at the beginning and then a couple of weeks into it being hosted by strangers who let me stay with them give me food I became friends with them I was reading all these books I was seeing all these new places I was just having all these amazing life experiences and so for me the, the complete highlight of that was was happiness. It was people always ask what was the best bit about it or what was the highlight. But and I think they expect that I'm going to say oh it was cycling through the fjords in Norway or cycling along the French Riviera. But to me it was just a feeling. It was never a place. It was just being able to be able to sit at the end of a day with my bike in my tent by the water with some bread and some bananas and just to feel happy and content. That that is all I ever wanted. Uh, it was the least I'd ever had in my life materially. Mm. I, had, I literally had nothing. I had very little money. I didn't have many possessions. Everything that I owned at that time could fit on the bike. And so I didn't have, in, in the traditional eyes of success, I didn't have anything. But really, I had everything. And so that, that was life-changing, I think. And so following on for that, maybe the low point of it, when you ask, I had a moment one year in, so obviously I'm meant to try and get right around the world, but I had I had my Forrest Gump moment about a year in, which was, as we all know from the film, the moment I thought, right, I think I'm going to go home now. So at this point, when I reflected back on the previous year and what I'd been able to do in the bike, I never wanted to cycle around the world. 
I wanted to be happy. Mm-hmm. That was all I ever wanted. And cycling around the world was the way of doing that. The, it was never about the bike. The bike was just a vehicle. That's the way I've described it. And so then I came home and I was really excited to be home. And the, the low point, there was no real, I, I suppose there was times where I felt a little bit homesick or, but during that whole year away, there was no real serious low moments. It was generally such a such a great experience. I never had any times where I felt in danger. People were so nice. But I suppose the low moment came when I came home. So when I came home, it was really nice for the first couple of weeks. To I was really just enjoying having like a wardrobe and putting all my clothes in one place. I was enjoying eating with cutlery. Just like those those little things that nobody would appreciate. But I was just like. I was so not used to it and I was really appreciating. But the longer I was back, it started to become really difficult because travel and long-term travel can really change you so much as a person. You, you will come back a different person from... I've always said as well that when I came back from my cycle, the only thing that was the same about me was my name. Mm. Like, there's you, you change that much. You really do change that much. And so the difficult bit was... How do you come back to the real world mm. or society after basically cycling 50 miles a day, eating three bananas and two baguettes and, cycle, and sleeping in a tent every single night for a year? That, that was the challenge. That was, and, it's, and it's still now my biggest challenge in life. But what if it's, the real world is what you were doing and the fake world yeah. is all the bullshit yeah. that we... Yeah. Well, that's, that's the point that I was, I was going to make, and I'm glad you said that, that what I've realised is that that real world, in inverted commas, isn't actually the real world. And that society and the way the world is at the moment, people think that's the real world because that's the only world they know. But I believe when I'm out doing things like that, that's actually the real world because I'm, when you live in society, in a, in a Western society, in a Western culture most people live in the kind of news and media and politics bubble where they think that's the world but when I was out there in the road I think I was getting to see the real world I was getting to meet the real people and I was getting to see all the real places and so that, that was a life-changing experience and it's, so when I say like what's the it's, it's not really a law it's just a challenge of that new way of living and as I said I feel like at the moment it is still the biggest challenge because it's hard to come back to normal society once you've done something like that because have you ever seen Lost mm-hmm. the TV series I've seen a few of them yeah yeah well it's, it's, it's exactly like in Lost where for anybody who's not watched Lost a group of people get stuck in a deserted island the plane goes down and all they want is to get off the island but they're there for that long that they finally get off and there's one of the guys who's just like I need to get back and it's it's like that so it's like for me when I'm back home I think for the rest of my life, I'm always going to struggle with the normal, real world as other people would traditionally view it because I know what else is out there. Yeah. I know what else is out there. It's like, how could how could I ever go back to that old world knowing that that new world's out there? Well, you've touched and embraced real humanity. Yeah. And yeah. it's and a very disconnected world that we live in insularly. If that, I don't know if that's a word. I'm going to pretend it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's been interesting recently as well is, have you, have you heard about or read the book Sapiens? Huh? Say, have you heard about it? No? Uh-uh. No, there's a, it's a, you, you really need to read it. There's a, it's, 
everybody's talking about it at the moment. This book, it's called Sapiens. It's it's incredible. It's just it's the basic. Oh, you know what? It, did is it the same writer that wrote um, Homo Deus? Yes. 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 I just finished Homo Deus, and it's incredible. And I have it. Sapiens is on my list to read. Homo Deus is awesome. It's such a good book. Ah, you have it! Yay! It's so. Have you read it yet? No, because so this this is the sequel. This is oh, the it's so movie. good! All right, I started oh. with the sequel. Then yeah, it's uh, so yeah. good. Well, I, I don't know if yeah, I don't know, I don't know if you have to read them in order, but that that is basically the second book of the guy who wrote *Sapiens*. Okay, yeah, I'm excited to read it because I, I mean, I devoured that book, the the *Homo Deus*. Yeah, it's so good. I'll put by the way, everyone listening, as usual, I'll put links on *Hey Human* podcast for all the stuff we're talking about. But yeah, that's a great book. Yeah. So, these kind of things that I've been thinking about, about how that, that new world and travel and being on the road, like, I've been reading Sapiens just this week, and it's talking about how the earliest human beings, we, we didn't actually stay in one place, we were always roaming, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of fueled this bit within me, it's like, because I had this, I think I made the mistake recently, where I thought, do you know what, maybe it's time to come back to Scotland, that's where I belong, Scotland, Scotland's where I'm from, I love the country and that's where I belong. But what I learned from reading this book was that, like, I don't belong anywhere. I belong on planet Earth. I'm, something that I've done recently is that when I, one of the last things I've done was hiking the Camino de Santiago. And one of the big breakthroughs I got in that was about this thing about who am I? And it was like, well, I am. That's it. There doesn't have to be anything after that statement. I am. Like, I am. That's it. And now recently, it's when I'm doing public speaking things the people who are booking me for events I think are getting a bit frustrated with me because they keep asking me for a bio so they can tell their delegates about who I am but I've got this new bio at the moment which is just human being from planet earth that's it because I think that when you when you come up with a bio for who you are and come up with a description of what you are it's just it puts you in a little box it puts you in a little pigeonhole and you think that's who you have to be and I think that something I've struggled with a lot in my life up until recently was that whole thing about identity, like who I am. And when you've got all these things, like, for example, I am successful or I am happy or I am an entrepreneur or I am Scottish, anything after that statement I am is going to define the life you live. And I think that, yeah, you have to sometimes strip away all that stuff. You are a human after my own heart, Josh, for sure. Absolutely. The Santiago, that's something that I want to, I've read a couple books about it and um, researched it and I want to do it. It's on my list to do and I can't wait. I'm so excited. So what what made you transition from the bicycling um, to the Santiago, which for those of you who don't know, that's a very, how many miles is it? It's it's like a, uh, it's, about, it's about 500 miles. Yeah. And it's a walk to, um, at the end, there's a big cathedral right, a big church, and yeah. talk about your, your decision to go on the Santiago. Yeah, so when I came back to the cycle, I struggled big time with purpose, like, what the hell am I meant to do in my life now, now that I'm home, and I started doing, I was based in Edinburgh, but I started doing a lot of more smaller challenges while still being based in Edinburgh, so I went and cycled around Italy, I'd done a cycle through the UK, and the Camino de Santiago has been something that's been on my list for years, because the, the very so on on the journey the last few years, I've reading is something that is everything that I know pretty much in life came from books. I'm a massive reader, 
and I've probably read about 75 books in the last two years. Just I just become obsessed by it, and, and it's helped me so much. And the first ever book that I read in the journey was The Alchemist. Oh, I love that's one of my top books yeah, of all the, time. So the, good. The Alchemist. The Alchemist is still probably because it impacted on my life at the time when I read it. It's probably my favourite book of all time. It's because. As well, I'm not going to ruin the story for him. He's not read it, but I am the alchemist. We're we're all the alchemist. Yes. We are all that young sh- that, that young shepherd looking for gold. That's, that's my that's next tattoo. Is going to be Maktub in Arabic on on me somewhere. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I love that book. So, so the, the alchemist was inspired by Paulo Coelho walking the Camino de Santiago, and he's also got another book about his story when he walked the Camino. So I'd always wanted to do it because of that, and when I was cycling around Italy. I was listening to a podcast with Oprah and Paolo Coelho and he was talking about the Camino and that's when I thought, right, that's the next one I'm going to do. And yeah, the Camino, it's really hard to put into words. Nothing I say in the next couple of minutes about the Camino is going to do any type of justice. It's the kind of thing that you just have to do it to experience it. I've done a lot of challenges and expeditions the last couple of years and they've all been great for certain different reasons. But the Camino has something different about it that you can only get in the Camino. Because the challenges that I've done around like Scandinavia and Europe, like anybody can go do that. And not not and what I mean by that is that not many people have done like when I cycled for Norway, I'm sure there's people who've cycled for Norway, but there's nobody who cycled for Norway on an official thing like I've done. But the Camino is different because there's millions of people that have walked the Camino and because of the religious roots of the walk it's a very spiritual walk. And when you're on the Camino, there is an energy like you'll never felt before because it's almost like that collective energy of all those souls who have been there and walked that path before you is still there and you can still feel it in the atmosphere. And so there's like there's almost this magical, there's this magical sense that you're doing something special and there's a lot of other people do it. You will, you will meet a lot of other people and you're really united by that that common that common thing that you're both walking the Camino and I met so many amazing people walking the Camino and one thing that I think united us all aside from the fact that we were walking together was that everybody was searching for something everybody was searching for something no two people were searching for for the same thing but everybody was looking for something everybody was looking for answers to a certain problem everybody was trying to get over something tough that had happened in their life so yeah, when all that collective energy and the people who are there, when you share that with them, it's yeah, it's, it's a life changing experience. And as I arrived in Santiago, it was quite spooky actually because the ending of the Alchemist was like me arriving in Santiago. They were they were very similar journeys, and it was just genuinely just like a dream my whole life. So yeah, wow. you have to get out there and do it. I can't wait to read your books. They're gonna be great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, what's been interesting about that as well is that, so, Paolo Coelho's got two books, like, he's got more, but the two books, that one was called The Pilgrimage, the one was called The Alchemist, and also The Alchemist is a storybook that was inspired by him doing The Pilgrimage. I've now got two books that I'm working on this year. One is, like, my pilgrimage book, The Story of My Life, and the other is actually a kid's book, which is, which is very much inspired by my story, so, yeah, I'm quite excited for that. That's awesome. Are you going to be in the tartan outfit in this kid's book? No, that, no, that, that got ditched a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
There, you know, I think a lot about is, I, the. Re, I love the idea, um, maktub, which is Arabic. It means it is written, and that that plays a big part in in the book, The Alchemist, that we're talking about. Um, there's another expression too that's often uh, times heard in not only spiritual literature; it's all over the Bible. Um, it's a Hebrew word that translates to. I, I'm always reticent to say the word because I'm always scared I'm going to mess up how to say it. But I think it's henene, and. Uh, and the idea of um, here I am or I am here, which are the same words, right? Here I am, I am here, but they mean such different things. Here I yeah. am is this sort of pleading, searching, and the I am here is is grounded and understanding of being a part of all the things. That that motivates me all the time, for sure. Yeah. Those two words specifically. Yeah. So you wanted to go back to the seatbelts. And I want to go back to the seatbelt. Yeah. yeah. So I would have told you up until very recently that that night I really wanted it to end. But I had an epiphany or a revelation or a breakthrough on the Camino that, do you know what? Even that night, I don't think I really wanted to give up because why was I wearing a seatbelt? Now... I've thought about this long and hard. And when you're doing the Camino, all you have is time to think. <laughs> and so I've thought about this for a long time. And I thought, well, maybe it was just a habit. Maybe it's just every time you jump in the car, you put on your seatbelt. Or wait a minute, maybe that was hope. Hmm. We talk about the word hope as some sort of, and we look at like a word as some sort of feeling that you have within you. But that to me was like hope in the material world, a material version of hope, that that act of me actually putting that seatbelt across my chest was was the reason that I'm still alive. And I've got this theory, and I don't even know if this is true, but all that matters is that I believe it. I have this theory that the me of today was with me in that car that night. Mm. Because what I've learned is that I think that something that I realised in the Camino as well was when I started travelling I started going to these expositions I always thought that like I think everybody does that it was about finding myself I was going to find out who I was but what I realised was that the purpose of life wasn't to find myself it was to lose myself Hmm. because the true authentic highest version of myself has been there all along deep within me but we lose sight of that because we create all these different identities and these personas of all these people that we think we have to be to be successful or to get achievement or to receive love from people around us. And that the way to actually connect with that true self is to let go of all those things, let go of the person you think you have to be. And so I think that that true authentic self was with me that night in the car, deep deep below all those layers of pain. And when I got in the car, that thought that said, put on the seatbelt, Josh. That wasn't just a conscious thought that came from nowhere. That came from, like, my true self within me and that it was that thought that kept me kept me alive. So, yeah, that was... So even now, I don't think even on that night that I've ever given up in life. It's beautiful. I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you put that seatbelt on. Me too. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, the, the videos that, are, that you do are so fantastic. They really are. Um... I'm really excited for you and everything that's coming and 
And I know, I know that you're going to make a huge impact, more so than you already have. I mean, you've impacted so many already, myself included, that it's exciting to know that that voice that is within you is going to be out in the world. It's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. What's next? What's coming? What's what's on the horizon? Other than the, you got the two books in the works, and you're you're going out and you're you're talking to people yeah. and. At, at the moment, what I have is I have a six-month period back home in Scotland that I've committed to. So over the last couple of years, since I started traveling, like there's been times where like I've quit the cycle and I've came home, and I've been I've been very much all over the place. And one of the things that I've not been able to do yet, well, I'm doing it now. But one of the things I've not been able to do up until this year is actually be home in Scotland and be happy. Mm. I've only been able to do it when I'm away, and so. All I want to do, I'm having six months, I've committed to it, and I just want to have six months home just to prove to myself that I can do it. And then I'm sure after that, there'll be many more adventures to come. But I just I just want to prove to myself, and I suppose a little bit to other people as well, that the things that I've learned aren't only applicable when I'm away. Because you have to be able to do it in the real world as well. You can't just do it when you're away on challenges. So how are you integrating with your friends and families and old co-workers and things now that you're back? You've only been back a short while. Yeah, I, well, I'm not, is the short answer to that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, that, that is the absolute answer to that question. The short answer to that is I'm not. Like, I, that, That's one of the things that's, that's challenging about home life is that like, I completely uprooted my whole life two and a half years ago to the point where I don't really have a life at home anymore. The, the, the thing that so when I'm home I'm doing a lot of public speaking and I'm doing a lot of video content and that that's the thing that keeps me going without that I would have a very very unhappy existence but I do have it so that's why I'm not unhappy but I, I, I think one of the things that I've been fascinated by recently is this whole thing about is me going away and travelling is that actually me running away from life Mm. that's the thing that I've, I've been thinking about and there was a point earlier in the year well the very start of the year end of, to the end of last year where I thought that do you know what I've just been running away and then but recently as I've been reading this book and I've been reading about how human beings are actually meant to be I've realised that it's, it's not running away if it is running away all it's been running away from is a traditional conventional life and by me going and doing these challenges me going on these adventures if I am running away, it's only because I'm running away to something much better. It's you're running, I don't, I, you're running towards. Yeah, I don't, yeah I, I don't have any problems here. Like, there's there's nothing wrong in this country where I live. There's, I don't have any problems here. I'm not running away from situations or people or events. I'm really not. It's just there's a much better, there's a much bigger world out there. Like, why would I want to be confined to such a small space? when I know that there's a huge big world out there that I can go and explore. And when I'm away on these challenges, well, I have so much purpose because as you'll know from following, like there's so much happening when I'm away that it means I can share more. People much prefer it when I'm away because they like to follow it. It's much more exciting. It works for everybody. So at this moment in time, I'm doing a little six months just to prove to myself and everybody else that you know what, I can actually do it. And that I'm not, when, they, when I go on these challenges, it's for a choice, not because I feel like I have to do them. Yeah. I think it must be, when, once you realize you're infinite, it's 
it can be challenging to to put yourself in finite experiences but you have to see yeah. the infinite within the finite as well whereas everything yeah. becomes a miracle and everything is even even the tragedies you know it's the hardest thing for a human to understand i think it's it's something i struggle yeah. with at least you know yeah, that that's something that I love about spirituality, and because I feel so spiritual, I, I almost feel not almost I do feel superhuman. Yeah. And and why I feel superhuman is because there's nothing that could possibly happen in life that could hurt me. Like when I in my day to day life, there's only two things that can happen: I either get the things that I want, and everything goes well, and I have good relationships, and I have good experiences, and I have good feelings, or things don't go well and it teaches me something about myself it's it's impossible for anything to go wrong in my life because I either get what I want and it goes well or whatever bad happens teaches me something and I grow more because of it yeah so it's I'm, I'm superhuman yeah you're an old soul my friend it's <laughs> 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 <This is> good <laughs> yeah. Josh this, this has been really great do you have anything that you want to maybe end on or I, I think that Something that I always like to say to people is that, especially this, I'm thinking about it a lot recently because I've been reading this book as well, and it's talking about history. I think that, I don't think people really understand just how little time we have to be here in this physical manifestation anyway, in this body, in this life. And like, it's really not going to be that long before we're all gone. And I think that for me, one of the things that's helped me over the last few years is just, like, you really need to live your life. Like, I think life is far too short to wake up every day and go somewhere you don't want to be and do something you don't want to do and return for money that allows you to buy things that are going to help you feel a little bit better about the fact you're living an unfulfilled life. Like, life is so short and you just have to live. Like, it's, it's too short to, to just get by and just try and keep your head above water you really need to go out there and try and live the best life possible because it's it's so short and I think that at this period in time there's just so much opportunity like if I if I was born if I was alive at this age in the 1950s I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now unless I came from a family who was extremely wealthy like I would have had to just take a job and buy a home get a mortgage have kids and just do that whole thing but nowadays, like, the whole world is just there. The internet has created so much opportunity for all of us. Like, think about the fact that when I go away in these challenges and I share little videos every day from, from walking the Camino, see, even just 20 years ago to do that, I'd have had to have, like, the BBC following me every day and hoping that they show my clips on the news at night. Like, that is crazy. Like, the fact that, that we can just go direct to people and it's just, oh... Something that I do say on, the, I talk a lot about depression because it's, it's the thing that I used to suffer with. I think that if you have depression right now, it's amazing. There's never been a better time to be depressed than now. Really, there's not because like 20 years ago, if you had depression, you might have had to actually leave your house and walk to a library to get a book about happiness that could help you. Nowadays, every single thing that's ever been written about happiness, personal development, depression, life, can be downloaded on your phone, on Kindle, within, like, a minute. And even if you don't have the money to buy the books, like, there's so there's millions and millions of information yeah. on YouTube and on Google that is just there waiting to be accessed. 
Like, so there's never been a better time to be depressed. Yeah. And the final thing I would say is that I think that when you have, you have something like depression or anxiety, I think typically people look at these as like their illnesses. They kind of just come out of nowhere and they hit us and that's it. We're a sufferer of that illness. Whereas I think that something that helped me was that like when I was depressed, it was like, this is a sign. This is like a message. My, my body is telling me that something's not quite right and that something has to change. So try and look at these things as opportunities. Like something I say now is that, like, I'm not. I still have challenges mentally, but I see them as opportunities. I don't. I'm not somebody who has mental health problems. I have mental health opportunities. Everything in life is an opportunity to grow, to become a better person, and ultimately, ultimately to, to have a better life. So yeah, just go out there and do it. What do you think if you happen to think? Because I think people listening certainly will. There will be people that have issues, and I urge anyone listening. You know, don't give up. Keep, keep find somebody. I'll I'll post phone numbers. You know, talk to somebody. Let let people know you're not. You really aren't alone. It's so important to know that. Um, Josh, if what happens to you now if you sink into a place where it seems dark? Because it's bound to happen again, probably. You know, it's statistically. Yeah. yeah. The first thing I would always say is that if you're in a dark hole right now you're suffering in a state of depression or anxiety, the first thing you have to know is that how you feel now is not how you're going to feel forever. It is completely possible for that to change. So the first thing you need is hope. You need hope that things can get better. And by the millions of people out there who have had depression have overcame it, you know that there's other people who came through it, so you can come through it too. But hope, hope's not going to do it. Hope's only going to take you so far. I think hope's only going to save you. If you're reliant on hope, to change your life, it's not going to happen. See if you hope things get better, or you hope that you feel a wee bit better, it's not going to happen. Hope's going to save you in a crisis, in a dark hole. But after it saved you, it's your responsibility to do something about it. And that's not a nice message to give, because it's typically not the nice thing to say. But from my experience, I'm trying to help people change their life. And for me, the reason I changed my life is because somebody said to me three years ago, Josh, you have to give up those excuses that you've got. Sometimes we need to hear the things that sound a little bit harsh on the surface because they're the things that can help us. So sometimes it sounds a little bit harsh when I say it's your responsibility, you have to change your life, you have to change things about yourself and your lifestyle and your diet, all those sort of things. But what that message actually is, it's a message of empowerment. I want to empower people because... At this moment in time, we have a lot of people within health saying to people that, you know what, you might have depression your whole life, which I think is holding people back. Mm. It's making people, it's giving people the mindset that, do you know what, I might have this my whole life and I have to manage it. I don't believe in that. I really don't believe in that. I think that if you tell yourself you're going to have depression your whole life, then guess what? You're going to have it your whole life. So I'm trying to empower people and go, do you know what, like, you can overcome this as possible. And I think that it does take a lot of hard work, but if you're willing to go through it, the rewards are, are life-changing because you'll get a life where you actually wake up every day full of joy and, it, and you're excited just to be alive as a human being. Yeah. Josh Quigley, thank you so much. It's really an honor. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Keep doing all this pleasure. awesome work. It's incredible. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Enjoy your evening. Yeah, you too. Yes, right.